This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At Denver's most affluent public schools, an experiment has taken place for the past two years. It was designed to address one of DPS's thorniest problems, the segregation of students by income level. So has it worked? Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat, the education news site, and she has been looking into this experiment. Melanie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Before we get to the experiment itself, let's talk about the problem DPS is trying to solve. What kind of segregation exists by income level? How serious is it? Yeah, there are uh, many schools in DPS that uh, where most students um, qualify for free and reduced price lunch, which is which is a proxy for poverty. Yeah. And there are many schools where very few students qualify for. Uh, that benefit. And there are not a lot of schools in between. So it it tends to fall along housing patterns, uh, depending on where students live. Okay. So there are clusters of poverty, you're saying, in schools that tends to map poverty in the city as well in neighborhoods. Uh, If well-off kids tend to go to school together and poorer kids tend to go to school together, what's wrong with that? What does DPSC is the problem? Well, some research shows that uh, all students benefit when there's a mix of incomes at schools. So integration uh, benefits all kids. That's that's something that DPS school leaders say a lot. And so DPS is trying to foster that with uh, different different programs, different pilot programs, different initiatives. Right. This is one of a whole host of efforts called the Strengthening Neighborhoods Initiative that's looking at creating more economic diversity. And I wonder if if you look at the economics of kids, does that also then tend to tell you something about uh, their racial background? In other words, does this wind up being, in many ways, racial segregation as well, because race and economics are, of course, connected? Yes, it does. So many schools where, say, 95% of students are getting this subsidized lunch also have 95% of students are minorities, 90% of students are minorities. Uh, also, high levels of English language learners uh, tend to also uh, go along with that. And then at schools where very few students qualify for subsidized lunch, oftentimes most of the students are white. All right. So this is telling us something not just about economic diversity. Well, describe how this this pilot program works, the idea of getting kids from poorer neighborhoods and schools into more affluent ones. Yeah, so DPS approached uh, a set of schools where fewer than 40% of students qualify for subsidized lunch. So these are its more affluent schools. And this was about two years ago, and they said, uh, hey, you know, we could... um, The district has universal school choice, which means that any student can request to attend any school in the district. And so they said, you know, after you admit students within your boundary, you we could uh, prioritize low income students to increase the diversity at your school. So this was never at the expense of kids who live in that particular neighborhood. They still got to go to the school closest to them if they so chose. But once those slots had been filled and there were a few extra, the idea was to prioritize low-income kids and bring them into these more affluent neighborhoods. Yes, yes. And five elementary schools and one kindergarten through eighth grade school signed on that first year. Um, And then the following year, which was just last year, East High School, which is Denver's most uh, requested, biggest school in the city, also signed on. Okay. So at one of the elementary schools, Creative Challenge Community, 
Only about 10% of students qualify for free or reduced lunch. Again, that's compared to nearly 70% district-wide. What have been the results at a school like that at the elementary level? Uh, that school is a little bit different because it's an all-choice school, but basically the uh, number of students in the kindergarten class, which is usually one student's choice into a new school mm. in kindergarten, has increased now. They're, they're about 13.5% free and reduced lunch students. So it's moved the needle a little bit. At some other schools that are, are boundary schools where students in the neighborhood get first priority, it's moved the needle a little bit less, I think, because they uh, have so few seats available. They have so many kids in the neighborhood who want to go to those schools that they may only have five or six kindergarten seats available for students to choice in. So even if they're giving those to low-income students, it's not making a huge impact on the school population as a whole. And what about at the high school level, say at East? Yeah, East is a totally different story because uh, they are so big and they have so many seats available for students to choice in and so many kids want to go there. So there were about 800 kids in this year's freshman class. A little less than half of those seats are uh, choice seats, which means they let in all the kids in the neighborhood and then there's 375 seats left over. And there's uh, always a waiting list of hundreds and hundreds of kids who want to get into East. And so this past year, the district prioritized low-income students first. And so in the past, those kids would have all been thrown in a lottery together and any kid would have had a 50-50 chance of getting in. But by prioritizing the low-income kids, this year, 100% of all the low-income kids who wanted to get into East got in because they got first priority. And so the needle moved much more at the high school level than at those elementary schools. Yes. Okay. What about transportation? So I'm guessing that these lower income kids live farther away potentially from these schools. Uh, Does that become a barrier? And is that part of the reason the changes haven't been perhaps more dramatic, uh, maybe at the elementary school level? Yeah, that is a big barrier uh, for all choice in in DPS. So the district doesn't provide bus service for choice students, for most choice students. And so uh, in order to get low-income kids, you know, to a more affluent school, first of all, those families have to know about the school, and then they have to be able to drive their kids there. Okay, so that's incumbent upon the parents. Yes. Um, And if the kids are particularly young, they're not necessarily taking public transit, for instance. Right, right. Well, uh, are DPS officials calling this a success? Do they think that this is worth continuing? I understand that the Strengthening Neighborhoods Initiative meets next week and may review the results of this. Yeah, this this is a committee that's been meeting uh, over the past several months, and they're set to release their final recommendations next week, actually. And this is something they've been looking at. Um, I guess the problem with maybe expanding it district-wide as a solution to integrating schools is that East, the situation at East is pretty rare. There aren't a lot of schools that are very big. That have that kind of room. That have that kind of room and that have a ton of kids who want to get in. So, you know, replicating this district-wide, you know, may not move the needle as much as uh, leaders hope it will. Okay. And so the, the future of this is in question, I gather. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the committee recommends next week. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat, and you can read her story about Denver's experiment to make schools more economically diverse at CPR.org.
Colorado set heat records last month, despite winter being just around the corner. It's too early to say what the warm weather will mean for large-scale agriculture, and more on that in a moment, but it's definitely affecting gardens. Larry Stebbins talked with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Stebbins leads Pikes Peak Urban Gardens in Colorado Springs. Larry, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Yeah, really strange fall here. I mean, what you need to do is prepare for the variance in temperature and and moisture because, you know, hot and dry, cold and warm. I mean, we're just having these extremes bounce through the season, and it's tough. What are you seeing in your own garden because of these recent warm temperatures? You know, one thing I want, uh, you know, that we say, this is a little saying that we say is, keep your plants moist, best choice. If the plants dry, the plants could die. So going into the winter, you have to keep your soil moist. Otherwise, if the plants are in there, perennials or whatever that will come back next year, you know, they're going to suffer. And we've had some really dry weather. So along with the heat, it probably wouldn't have been as bad if we had a lot of moisture with it. But we're not getting that moisture, Nathan, so you have to winter water. Some people maybe already have winterized their outdoor plumbing and their hoses and sprinklers are, are put away. I know, and that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Keep your sprinklers, if they're blown out and, and winterized, keep that closed down. But bring out a garden hose. It's, not, it's a little inconvenient, but uh, hook it up and, uh, and you might have to hand water. But at least to get some moisture in there. And once it freezes, we're good. And people also need to remember that goes for their trees and their shrubs as well. Now, Nathan, there's this, there's this tool that we use. You know, if you hook it onto the end of your hose, it looks like a big spike. Huh. It's a deep root waterer. We go out about, uh, oh, about 12, 15 feet from the trunk and circle around the tree and keep it on for about 10 minutes, let it deeper water. And that way it'll go through winter with moisture around the roots and the tree won't go through drought stress. I'm thinking of these old trees in Denver that I see on, 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 you know, main streets throughout Colorado. They seem to have done pretty well up to this point. I mean, I don't think that they've been watered and things at all. Is, is that because they're hardy or, or, or what? That's because drought stress doesn't show up for three to five years for trees. Uh, if you don't water them this year, for example, if they didn't get enough water this year, you will see the tree start to decline in about three to five years. And you'll say, well, it was because of that year. Well, no, it's not. It was because of of this year, perhaps. But I'm also noticing that the grass isn't turning brown yet either. Well, that's one of the problems. And you need to get a little water on that grass. Not a lot, but you need to water it. It's best if you water deeply, that that water goes down six to eight, ten inches. And then chances are you'll be able to get through on your lawn until next spring. But as far as your garden goes, um, you know, you need to keep that soil moist until it freezes. And, uh, you know, we're telling people out there, Nathan, to to also use mulch on top of your garden beds that you want to plant next year. And if you keep it moist throughout the, you know, late fall, early winter, early spring, then it'll be able to accept what moisture Mother Nature gives us, and you should have a better garden come next spring. Through snow and snow cover and and things like that. Yeah, snow cover would be perfect. You know, if we had snow right now, it would absolutely be perfect. But, you know, in our garden, we're seeing things sprout up that we haven't seen before. One thing is we plant shallots, which are a bulb, of course, related to the onion, and we plant those in the fall. And I have never in 20 years in gardening here in Colorado Springs had them sprout in the fall. Now, are they going to die? No, they'll get hit back a little bit by the cold temperatures. But, you know, this warm weather has allowed them to sprout much earlier than they ever would. 
Are, are there other crops from the summer and fall lasting longer than you expected? Yes, we're <laughs> kale is one of them in collard greens. All right. Oh, kale, absolutely. And uh, we've been harvesting kale in our garden. I mean, I've never harvested really good kale. I mean, it, it might survive some frost, but the thing is, it usually gets really tough and hard to eat. We're having delicious kale harvested off of our kale plants. I never took them out of the garden because they still looked good. And we're also harvesting spinach. You know, I planted spinach in August. We usually harvest it out by the end of September, early October. We're still harvesting spinach out of our garden now. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. Larry Stebbins from Pikes Peak Urban Gardens in Colorado Springs. Some farmers market vendors are seeing similar longer harvests this fall. That's according to Adrian Card from CSU Extension in Boulder County. There were a head lettuce harvests into early November, root crop harvest into late November, early December. So we've, we've extended that for those, those produce growers that roll the dice and try to see how far they can push the season for harvest. It's been a very bountiful and forgiving fall. Card isn't too worried yet about what the warm fall will mean for crops and snowpack. There can be some game-changer snow events that happen between now and the beginning of the irrigation period sometime in April or May. So it's concerning, but we can't clearly predict into the future what this warm spell will mean for crop production and harvest for 2018. But he says southwest Colorado in particular is very dry right now, about 29 percent snowpack. Over the next few months, he'll have a close eye on crops like winter wheat, which consumers would normally see at grocery stores next summer. It relies on wet soil throughout the winter. What's most concerning is really soil moisture at this point for winter wheat and any other overwintering annual crops, any pastures as well that could be impacted by low soil moisture. So if it's a very severe, very dry winter, that could dramatically impact that wheat crop. Just to be clear, that's wheat not weed. I'm Nathan Heffel. Thousands of families in the state may soon lose health coverage for their children. Federal funding for the program called CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, is in limbo. It has long enjoyed bipartisan support, but as CPR health reporter John Daly explains, it's now one piece in a larger Washington budget battle. In a cozy apartment in Denver, T.C. Bell goes over spelling words with his daughters, Dagny, who's eight, and five-year-old Emma. You want to say a word and spell it and then say it? Well, W-E-L-L. Bell expects a letter soon from the state Medicaid program telling him that the girls' health insurance provided through CHIP may end January 31st without new funding from Congress. I ask him what he'll do. It's really scary to actually be asked that question and have to, like, come up with a real response. Like, what's going to happen if your kids don't have access to health care? Oh, so they're going to have to grow up like I did? where I couldn't just go to a doctor if I got sick. The son of a single mother. Money was tight, and he didn't have health insurance, so the family relied on the ER in a pinch. Now he's 30, a single dad, and a full-time student, working odd jobs on the side. Bell's income is limited, and his daughters qualify for health coverage through the program. It's so beneficial in the sense that I have that just that sense of security that I know that I can tell my kids to a doctor in case anything happens. Without it, he could see the ER once again becoming his family's only option. It would end up 
us being more of a burden on the healthcare system. Bell's daughters are among 75,000 children enrolled in the state's Children's Health Plan Plus. Medicaid Director Gretchen Hammer says her agency sent the letters so families wouldn't be caught off guard if the program ends. She wants families to think about their options and understand which insurance plans their provider will accept. It was really the number one priority when we spoke with families that they know that they can maybe continue to see that provider. Hammer says Colorado's program costs $185 million a year with federal funding covering 88 percent. So if funding for the insurance program is cut, it would be a tall order for the state to bridge that gap. Hammer is worried about something else, too, the nearly 800 women who are also enrolled. I personally am in, in concerned about pregnant women. Having a disruption in care during a pregnancy is not something I think that is desirable. Hammer is cautiously optimistic Congress will renew funding, but in the meantime... Families are very scared. They're nervous about losing health insurance for their children. Now we'll look at your eyes and your ears, okay? This clinic at Children's Hospital Colorado serves a lot of kids on public insurance, about 85%. Perhaps 10% are covered by the Children's Health Insurance Program. Pediatrician Christopher Stilla says typically these are kids whose parents can't afford commercial insurance. These are kids whose parents work and make a little bit too much money to qualify for Medicaid. It's a lifeline for them. Stilla says the program has been essential in helping to bring the uninsured rate for Colorado children down to 2.5 percent. But its funding expired in September. Early last month, the House approved funding. The Senate has not yet voted. This is not a good way to run government, and this should be an easy win for Congress. That's Joan Alker, executive director of the Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. Twenty years ago, a pair of senators, liberal Ted Kennedy and conservative Orrin Hatch, teamed up to create the program. Now, Alker says, Chip is in a squeeze, with majority Republicans not ready to fund it until they resolve other budget priorities. I would say that CHIP remains very popular in a bipartisan way. But unfortunately, we're living in a time of hyperpartisanship, particularly when it comes to health policy. Denver dad T.C. Bell is warily keeping his eye on Washington, but he's disappointed there was ever any question about money for children's health insurance. And to see our government not really care about us or what we're going through and instead put all of its energy to pass this tax bill, it's depressing as a parent, as a working class American. If Congress doesn't restore funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program by the end of December, the state will issue another batch of letters. They'll tell parents like T.C. Bell to sign up with another insurer if they can find or afford one. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Retired Sergeant Major Stan Parker says the scariest part of his long military career wasn't the firefights, even though there were too many to count. No, the scariest part was coming home from Vietnam. Parker, who lives in Colorado Springs, says he felt shunned by his fellow Americans and didn't talk about the war for years. His story is at the heart of a new book, The Odyssey of Echo Company. It comes out ahead of the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive, a turning point in the war that Parker fought in. He joins me along with the book's author, Doug Stanton. And gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, First to note that like your book, this conversation may contain some graphic descriptions of war. 
You two actually met in Afghanistan in 2005. Doug, you were working on a, a different book about that war, and you ended up talking to Stan for hours. He was familiar with your work. What struck you about that conversation, Doug? What struck me about my first meeting with Stan Parker at Kabul at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan is we're flying over Afghanistan trying to get me to the Pakistani border. I'm researching a book called Horse Soldiers. Um, was that this gentleman was one of the oldest soldiers on the airfield. He definitely was in charge. And what he wanted to talk about was something that most of us have forgotten, which is the Vietnam War as we're flying over Afghanistan. I thought it was a real act of courage for him to come forward from the back of the helicopter. Um, we began having a very nice conversation. But when I finally started to ask him, were you in Vietnam? <laughs> he he really wanted – That's that was what definitely was a part of a, a life experience for him that he, I don't think at the time he'd really squared away, uh, uh, you know, for himself. Hmm. Did you find that your fellow soldiers at that time, Stan – weren't perhaps steeped in the Vietnam War or aware of its history or even your connection to the war? Uh, some of them were aware of it. Most of them weren't uh, you know, because there weren't too many uh, Vietnam veterans still on uh, duty at that time yeah. in the military. So uh, I was an oddity. You were an oddity and one that caught Doug Stanton's attention for sure. You you stayed in touch, but I understand it was another seven years before you met again, this time in Colorado Springs, and that's when this book began to come together. Uh, Stan, I want to talk about why returning from war was such a difficult time in a bit, but uh, you graduated high school in Gary, Indiana in 1966, enlisted in the Army, and, quote, couldn't wait to become a paratrooper. Why were you so eager to go to Vietnam? Uh, our family had been a patriotic family. It was uh, the thing to do, uh, is expected of us. And I wanted to be, if I was going to go, I wanted to be what I wanted to be. And I had an older brother who had entered the service a year before, and he was already a paratrooper. And it sounded like it was an exciting uh, adventure, and that's what I decided I wanted to do. And so your family was on board? I thought they had reservations, actually, about you. Well... My mother was not on board huh. with the idea. She uh, knew that the Vietnam War was, was going on, and she already had one son that was in the military with uh, the great prospects of going. And to have a second son was not her idea of what she had uh, raised it to be. So it was not good. You were eventually assigned to a recon unit which meant patrols deep into enemy territory. And your unit fought in the Tet Offensive. This is a turning point in the war. It started in January 1968 and ran for much of that year. That was the bloodiest year for American troops. Doug, your account of the fight at Landing Zone Jane that Stan was involved in has to be one of the most vivid and disturbing accounts of battle I have ever read. You write at one point, Stan looks up. It's begun to rain. He tastes blood. It's raining men, exploded men. What do you think a reader gets out of a description like that? I think what they get, having traveled around the country now since the book came out, from Seattle to Tampa, is a sense of what a generation of not only uh, 70-year-old men, but their families, their wives, their sons, 
And if you think you're not living in Vietnam today, you are, because people like Stan Parker are thinking of the taste of that battle. And this this war is really one of America's unfinished narratives. Race, gender, politics in Vietnam are things that we really still have trouble talking about in America. And I was frankly stunned during this last book tour to discover the degree to which a generation of Americans have, have hidden this momentous, cataclysmic experience uh, on the battlefield from the rest of their peers, both in professional life, even within their families. We all know the uncle at the family reunion uh, who everyone knows was in Vietnam, but no one ever talks to him about it. It is a national shame, in my opinion, that we have asked this, this generation of Americans to kind of hide and stuff this away because that's not healthy. And if you can't tell your story, it's not your story. So all I wanted to do in this book was listen to Stan and his buddies and repeat and witness and acknowledge back so that uh, at least we have some empathic sense uh, of what it feels like to go to war. How did it feel to talk about your experiences in such vivid detail, Stan? Uh, To someone who I didn't know, it was... uh, I was very reluctant because uh, over the years, people did not want to hear about it. Uh, Family members had heard some of my stories, and they were receptive because they were family, but only close family. There was other family members like uncles and uh, cousins and nephews and stuff who it was, okay, yeah, fine, but let's get on and talk about something else. So talking with Doug, it was unusual, but then he... He uh, relaxed me, and I was able to talk because he would ask questions that were pertinent to what I wanted to talk about and say, and he made me feel good. What's an example of something you wanted to say? Uh, Of what it was like to be there, and he understood that, and then also uh, progressing of what it was like to come home where people had totally put that away, and they had shunned us. And they didn't want to bring it back up again. That battle at Landing Zone, Jane, really seems to be a turning point for you, Stan. Uh, It's when the reality of war, I think, clashes with your 19-year-old self's romanticized version of war. And you see enemy soldiers throwing themselves over ground spikes so their fellow soldiers could just walk over them and keep moving. It was as if the enemy was not afraid to die. Did you have that sense? Uh, well, that definitely when they're not afraid to die. And even though everybody is afraid to die, when it gets to that point where the battle is going, then you forget about that part of it, and you just do what your job is, and that's what they were doing. And they got a, they were one step ahead of us. We weren't prepared for what we were about to see and what we were about to endure. And once the reality sunk in, it was, we got to do the same thing they're doing, and we're not going to jump on the uh, Constantino wire, but we're going to have to give our life if we have to, to survive, for others to survive. And that was the realization you had on the battlefield. I was fascinated to learn that the North Vietnamese uh, often traveled with bamboo sticks, and this would allow them to sort of pole vault over obstacles. This is an image that's seared into my mind from the book. Do you, you remember that, I gather, Stan? Yeah. Well, I don't know if they carried them all the time, but I do know that that was one of the things that struck me as 
very uh, mind-boggling that they would use these sticks to pole vault just like at a high school track game. And uh, they went right over the top of the wire. And then there were the other ones that would jump on the wire to hold it down so the mass behind them could just run over the top of them to get into our uh, uh, camp and totally overrun us. On one patrol, Stam, you you came across a young Vietnamese girl, maybe six or seven. You give her a can of peaches, and not long after leaving her, you hear gunshots. North Vietnamese soldiers killed her. Uh, that was an emotionally crippling experience for you. Doug, you interviewed several of Stan's platoon mates, and what came out of those conversations about how they coped? How they coped? In two ways. One was silence, and mostly then later in life, as in today, storytelling. Um, You know, I'm grateful to have met Stan and other members of the platoon as a reporter myself because it showed me that the power of language to kind of order uh, nonsense into some sense as as a... uh, it has real power. And um, that story with the girl uh, with, the, with the peaches uh, just uh, just about destroyed me when I first heard it. And I know it was very difficult for Stan to talk about. And you asked at the top here, you know, what ha- why read this? And I guess the point would be that um, I, when I meet people, hopefully the, what they say is this is a book that you can slide across the kitchen table uh, and read, and perhaps it's a door to your own family's experience uh, into this, um, what I call a cataclysm of uh, Vietnam. And um, so that Peach's story is is intense, but I think it's important for that reason. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Doug Stanton, the author of The Odyssey of Echo Company, the 1968 Tet Offensive and the Epic Battle to Survive the Vietnam War. Its release comes just before the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive. And we're speaking with uh, Stan Parker, who's largely the subject of this book, the retired sergeant major. And I want to point out that, Stan, you were severely injured twice in Vietnam. You were really almost killed, and you received Purple Hearts for both of those injuries. After your third injury, you were up for another Purple Heart, but you refused it. Why? Uh, the requirement was if you got three Purple Hearts, you were sent home. And even though I thought, well, going home would be what I really wanted to do in the back of my mind, but in the front of my mind, staying there with my comrades because we were under strength because of attrition. And to be there with them was foremost, instead of uh, deserting them and leaving them there to finish the war without me. My job was to stay there with them. So the only thing I could do would be refuse the third Purple Heart and hope that JAG lawyers would uh, not say, well, you're still going home. It's like, well, you have a point there. You refuse the Purple Heart, even though you're wounded. You didn't get it, so you can stay here. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. You did not get the third Purple Heart and thus stayed in Vietnam Correct. with, as you say, your your comrades. This wasn't the end of your military career by any means. You served in Somalia, Afghanistan, and Iraq, among other places. Afghanistan is now the U.S.'s longest war, surpassing Vietnam. But I'd like to talk a bit about your return to Vietnam many years later. 
um, Stan uh, and Doug, I think you went together in 2015, right? And retraced steps from the Tet Offensive in 1968. Why was that important to you, Doug? It's always important for me in any book I write. I, I went back to Afghanistan twice for horse soldiers is to walk the ground. And in this case, to walk the ground was Stan Parker and his buddy Tom Souls, also a member of this recon platoon. Um, just to because this goes to the heart of the question of the importance of telling a story like this is to make it real and concrete and to almost see from the ground the story kind of arising out of the the brush and the landscape there. And that happened um, uh, uh, for us in an amazing unplanned way. I'll let Stan maybe tell that part of the story. But uh, this book, we don't get closure much, and that's a trite phrase, but it the interesting thing about this journey is called the Odyssey of Echo Company because I felt like the very first step that Stan and his buddies took out of the helicopter was really the first step home. Pretty quickly they realized their job was – their journey here was to get home alive. And um, and met, for me, the, this, Viet, the journey didn't end until we were in, back in Vietnam uh, with Stan and Tom Souls and we had this encounter. Yeah, you met a Vietnamese man named Mr. Sin – uh, talk about who he is, Stan. Uh, he was one of the uh, our opponents at uh, a village called Trong Hoa that we were in a very vicious battle there. Uh, and him and I actually uh, literally tried to kill each other. And he thought that he had succeeded. And I thought that I had succeeded in killing everyone there. But 40-something years later, we find out that uh, he's still alive in the village, and the people there were referring to him as uh, a disillusioned old man because of his stories. They didn't want to believe him, and it's kind of like for us and myself, people didn't want to hear our stories, but yet his story was a carbon copy of mine. And which brought us together, as I would tell things and as he would tell things, we would, through the interpreter, it was amazing how he remembered and I remembered. And it got to the point where he had said that uh, he thought they killed me uh, four or five times. Uh, but yet I continued to get up and continue to charge the bunker. And then I blew the bunker up, which then blew him out of the area the explosion, which uh, if he had been standing where he had originally been, it would have killed him, but he did move away from it, and a secondary explosion blew him out of a uh, headquarters building and rendered him unconscious for a time. You were able to come up with those details and to realize how you had crossed each other's paths. And, and what is it like to sit decades later in the same room with someone who tried to kill you and you tried to kill? Well, I thought that he would be upset and angry and would want to maybe retaliate against me. So, but I wanted Doug to tell him who I was, which Doug did. And he, you know, asked me, is it okay if we let him know what's going on? And when that came out that I had been there, uh, we actually became friends. And even though we were distance apart there for a little bit, when he got to describing things, I could tell his military jargon was military and that you know, his stories were a mirror image of mine. And finally, uh, I asked him, hey, do you mind if, 
you know, if I give you a hug and he looked and smiled at me and he says, you know, uh, he told the interpreter, yes, uh, we were once enemies, but today we are friends. And we gave each other a hug and we actually then became uh, friends after so many years. Uh, a poetic note to end on. Thanks so much. The story of Vietnam veteran Stan Parker of Colorado Springs is told in the new book, The Odyssey of Echo Company. It's by New York Times bestselling author Doug Stanton. You can read an excerpt at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. The program that protects some young, undocumented immigrants from deportation known as DACA will end in March unless Congress steps in. Well, dozens of members of Congress have just called for a permanent solution by the end of the year. They include Colorado Republican Mike Kaufman. If leaders fail, Kaufman says he'll try again to force a House vote on a temporary extension of DACA called the Bridge Act. CPR's Mike Lamp asked Kaufman where that effort stands. One question is, can we do better than DACA and, and have some sort of permanent solution, a DREAM Act, if you will, which would be a path to um, legal permanent residency based on military service, based on work history, based on education. DACA is a good default position. The Bridge Act, uh, that would give us a three-year extension on, on DACA. And so uh, certainly if all else fails, my hope is that efforts will go back to that rather than let the system completely fold and, and these young people be subject to deportation. But I'm, I'm optimistic that we can get more than DACA, that we can get some sort of a, a DREAM Act. And so that's what I'm still working for. At what point will you, you know, really step in if congressional leadership doesn't do what you would like them to do? If that does occur and we get towards that March deadline, uh, that, that certainly that I would encourage my colleagues from both sides of the aisle to sign on to the discharge petition that is the Bridge Act that would extend uh, DACA for, for three years uh, and, and protect uh, these young people. And if that uh, took place, would you have to reintroduce this discharge petition, or is it still out there just waiting for uh, members of Congress to sign on to it? No, it is still out there. And so uh, I just have to, you know, uh, campaign for it, if you will, uh, to encourage people to, to sign it. So that is really a last resort. We're far from there yet, uh, and I'm still optimistic, although I'm not optimistic that it's gonna, there's going to be a resolution by the end of the year, but certainly optimistic that there'll be a resolution by March. Well, there is a deadline uh, kind of approaching a little more quickly, and that has some Democrats pushing, I understand, to include a DACA extension in any bill to keep funding the government. What do you think about that approach? Well, I'm not for a shutdown uh, for the government as much as passionate I am about these young people. I do believe we can arrive at a situation uh, or solution. Uh, it probably will involve some elements of border security uh, in exchange for hopefully some kind of Dream Act, some kind of permanent solution for these young people. 
You represent uh, Aurora, Colorado, which is a place where I imagine there are an awful lot of DACA participants right there in your district, along with their families. Have you heard from some of them about uh, their fears of maybe deportation, having their families divided? Oh, well, that's been a constant source of anxiety among these families. One story I think that is so impressive about a young person that came to my office that I often reflect on is uh, Monica, which is her first name, (laughs) and she's given me her permission to use her name. Her parents took her here when she was one year old. I mean, she knows of no other country. She grew up here. She went to school here, graduated from high school here. uh, But prior to her graduation, she had applied to go to the United States Naval Academy. And because of her citizenship status was ineligible to go, but she had all the right grades. She had the activities, and she had everything going for her and wanted to serve the only country she's ever known. And so I think it's a tragedy for so many of these young people. And so it's just important for us to to bring this issue to closure. Congressman Mike Kaufman of Aurora speaking with Mike Lamp about DACA. When he was a kid in Iowa, Paul Stewart played cowboys and Indians. And he always had to be an Indian because there were no black cowboys, he was told. Eventually, he learned that was wrong. Stewart came to Colorado, met a black cowboy, and wound up starting the Black American West Museum in Denver. Stewart died in 2015, and this weekend, the museum will screen a new documentary about his life. Let's listen back to my conversation about Stewart's legacy with Daphne Rice Allen, the museum's chairwoman. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Paul Stewart often told a story about the first time he met a black cowboy. Will you share that story with us? What I understand, what I was told, is that he had been back and forth to Colorado a couple of times. I believe he had an uncle or some cousins that lived here and met a gentleman in, you know, a hat and cowboy boots and just thought, okay, who does this guy think he is? He's just a dime store cowboy. But when he learned this gentleman truly was a cowboy, had his own ranch, his own farm, He basically dedicated his life to unearthing that information. It must have been like meeting some kind of hero. It may have been, and this is my interpretation, is that it probably was more of a aha moment that, yes, I can be and do anything I want to be, that we as black people have truly contributed to the settling of the West. He started collecting artifacts, photographs, newspaper articles about black people in the West, and particularly cowboys. Where did he get that kind of material? It's a collection of people bringing him items, investigating, having conversations with people, meeting them at their homes. Um, He traveled the country. And he also was an educator as well. But he had his roots starting as a barber. And much like most barber shops and beauty shops, you know, you talk about sports, you talk about ex-husbands, you talk about whatever. As he unfolded this information, people would bring him a bit, a bridle, a saddle, and say, oh, yeah, Aunt Harriet was in Deerfield, Colorado. Uncle Bob was in Nicodemus, Kansas. Somebody was in Boley, Oklahoma. And yes, I, I have a cousin in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And they would bring him these articles, these artifacts. And some of them he would also find in his travels and interviews of people as well. 
You mentioned Deerfield, which uh, is now a ghost town and was a historically black settlement in Weld County. At one point, up to 700 people lived there. So he was working at a barber shop when he came to Colorado in the 60s. And he met everyone, I guess, from celebrities like boxer Sonny Liston to local folks, as you described. Here's what he told CPR News last year about those encounters. I don't know why, but I was always interested in history, so I'd always interview them. You know, when did you come to Colorado? Why did you come to Colorado, you know? Daphne, I understand your mother would visit the shop. What did she tell you about what Paul Stewart was like back then? My mother taught one of the first pilot courses for black history in the Denver public school system, and she would take her classes to that barber shop and interview Paul and the kids would meet and, and talk about all those items, the saddles and the ropes and, and spurs and chaps and hats. And as you mentioned, um, papers and articles about people of the West. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering the founder of the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center in Denver. That's Paul Stewart. Joining us is the museum's chairwoman, Daphne Rice Allen. So the museum really started in the barber shop, and it sounds like it may have had a few homes before he began the museum itself. Let's hear from Paul Stewart again about what inspired the museum. African Americans play a very important part, but it wasn't in the history books. My main object is to make people aware that we we were here and we did contribute to the history. Were there other ways that Paul Stewart documented and spread the history of African Americans in the West beyond the museum itself? Oh, absolutely. He was instrumental in writing a book that is no longer um, in print called Westward Soul. Hmm. Paul, as I said, was also an educator. He would go to the schools. He would do presentations not only in Denver public schools, but in the Aurora school system. People would have him speak at a government office or a business. I'll note that the Black American West Museum in Denver is open two days a week now. What's the state of the museum these days? We are alive and vibrant. We man the museum on Friday and Saturday because all of the board members do actually have full-time jobs. Hmm. But we do everything we can humanly possible to keep the maintenance going, the building strong, Um, We own the main museum, the home of Dr. Ford, and then the house next door. Dr. Ford is the first licensed black female physician here in Colorado, and her two-story Victorian home houses the artifacts and memorabilia of the Black Migration West. Well, Paul Stewart was on dialysis for a few years. Um, Even in that time, he was working on another book, this one about the Five Points Neighborhood, He also told CPR News in our last interview with him that he hoped to write more books about black women, black minors, black athletes. What does it say to you that even as he knew he was near the end of his life, into his 80s, he was still working on this stuff? He was just a remarkable man. His history, our history, it was just a part of him. Um, And it was just important for him to help other people learn about the contributions of African-Americans in America and in the West. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. Daphne Rice-Allen chairs the Black American West Museum in Denver. We talked about its founder, Paul W. Stewart. On Saturday night, the museum debuts a new documentary about Stewart's life. 
He died in 2015. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.